Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Uh, we will continue doing, uh, walking our way through the series on the book of Colossians, a book written by the Apostle Paul to a church in a little town called Colossae. So the people who live there are called Colossians, right? Um, not Galatians, although we might, some of us need them to go home. But Colossians is the book. Um, the first chapter talked about how, basically set the stage for the rest of the, the uh, book and what Paul wanted to say. Um, Paul laid out this vision of the all-encompassing lordship of Christ uh, from the very beginnings of creation uh, through the salvation that came through Christ's life on earth and his death and resurrection um, to the ultimate restoration of creation um, when God's kingdom would be established. And then having set up that backdrop for what real, true reality is, Paul then goes on to talk about, okay, what does this mean for us in our daily lives? How do we live with that knowledge of who Christ is and what Christ has done. Um, so the last week we talked about um, how there were some pressures fa- uh, bearing in on the Colossian church, and one of those was the issue of legalism, uh, trying to uh, follow rules and regulations. Um, and then the, this week we'll talk a little bit about uh, maybe not a way of living legalistically, but a new way of living, a new way of being in the world. And then next week, we'll wrap up with a discussion of what that means in family life. How does the new life of Christ affect us in our family relationships? So given that backdrop, um, these new, this new living situation because of what Christ has done uh, leads, us, leads Paul into talking to the Colossians about how they should live their lives. He starts, starts talking about morality and the ethics. What's a Christian ethic for the way we live in the world? Uh, so, to, first of all, let's start with the very beginning of chapter 3. We'll work our way through about half, maybe two-thirds of the way of chapter 3 today. But the very first part is a little bit theoretical, so I want to bite that piece off first, and we'll talk about that. But the passage is on the screen, maybe, perhaps. I think we have the first couple of verses, actually verses 1 through 4. Paul writes, "...since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God." Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. This is going to set the stage for the rest of this chapter that Paul's going to talk about, where he gets into specific things about practices and behaviors. Um, But there's two kind of key action verbs, if you'll notice in the passage here. He talks about setting your hearts on something and setting your minds. Setting your hearts and your minds, that means together, the whole person, your feelings and your thoughts. And when he starts talking about what setting your mind means, that's not necessarily just a strictly an intellectual exercise. It's not uh, rationalism or bare intellectual uh, kind of surface level religion, but it means that there's, it requires thoughtful action. Set your minds on. Keep seeking and set your minds on what, that, what Christ has done. And so when Paul talks about those kinds of things, he's implying that we are to take a form of action, thoughtful, willful action on these things that he's about to talk to us about. 
So what is it that he uh, tells us to set our hearts and our minds on? Well, what Christ has done is brought about such a new and a different situation that Paul's kind of struggling to find words to really explain it well. Um, the language that he uses here in these first four verses are, well, it would make fans who are like science fiction or fantasy fans, you'll, go, you'll love this, okay? Uh, because Paul doesn't know how, what language to use, so he uses these metaphors. And he's messing around here with the space-time con continuum. Um, so we'll cue the Twilight Zone theme music here, and we'll dig into this in just a little bit. Um, Paul is messing with, because Christ has messed with, um, our space, our place in the world. Take a look at some of the language in those verses. Uh, do we still have those on the Can we put those back up on the screen, guys? Thanks. Um, he says, set your minds, set your hearts on things above. He mentioned that twice, things above, two times in there. Above what or where, we're not really sure yet. Another phrase that he says is where Christ is at the right hand of God, which that's kind of ancient code language for someone who has taken their place, place beside the real king, but they have the same authority and the same honor that the king has. So Christ has that same authority and same honor that God has because Christ is at the right hand of God. And again, Paul says it's not an earthly things that we're supposed to focus on. And he also says that our lives now are hidden with Christ in God, which is kind of a weird phrase, kind of a mysterious kind of phrase. And then he talks about us appearing in glory with Christ when Christ returns, when Christ appears again. All of these things are kind of vagueish kinds of language, but really, it's not really a physical or geographical location Paul's talking about. It's rather a more a dramatic way of describing Christ's sort of life in this world, even though Christ may not no longer be with us on this, uh, in this world. Um, we are to live this Christ sort of life, and that's, this, this is the language that Paul uses to try to describe that. Uh, the, the, Christ, the life that Christ lived was a self-giving love uh, for the sake of the world. And he, all, he continually lives in the presence of the Father as he's doing this. So rather than talking about where we're supposed to be living at physically, Paul is thinking about where are you mentally and where are your emotions based? Is it in the life of Christ, a self-giving kind of love, kind of space or place where you're living? Um, and then Paul also talks about time in a different way than what we're used to. It kind of talks, it's the idea of time in the Christian perspective is an already, not yet kind of thing. Christ has already won some victories, but not fully. So there's not yet have we seen the full completion of that. And Paul says, you, the Colossians, and to us Christians today, we also are living in that already, but not yet kind of uh, time place. And in fact, we'll find all three different tenses of time in this, these four verses here. In the past, he says, you have been raised and you died. That's past tense. But he also says that your life is now hidden in Christ, present tense. And then he talks about the future in the same, ver in the same sentence. When Christ appears, you will appear with him. So past, present, and future are all with us at the exact same time. So again, Paul is setting up this weird time and space warp kind of a thing because it's such a new uh, situation that Jesus has brought about because of his life, death, and resurrection. Uh, now, those of you who may be uh, science fiction fans might remember an old Ray Bradbury story, uh, The Sound of Thunder, 
where a guy does some time travel. I love time travel kinds of stories and movies. Uh, but one of the continuing themes or motifs in time travel is that what we call the butterfly effect. That is, one small little change in the past can have catastrophic uh, consequences in the future. So that if a butterfly is stepped on and crushed back in the Jurassic times, it has huge implications for our political and ecological conditions you know, millions of years later. And that's what happens in that story from, by Ray Bradbury. Um, the Christian perspective on time is not that different because of a small, simple, un, almost unnoticed at the time uh, event thousands of years ago has had huge implications for the future of the world and the cosmos. Um, at least from the perspective of the Romans, think about it, um, Jesus was not really that big of a deal. He was a small-time revolutionary that they had to squish, um, and so they crucified him, but he was in some little, one of the most least important provinces in the Roman Empire, and a very, not really very well known outside of a, his circle of friends and disciples. And the governor, Pontius Pilate, when he was interviewing Jesus at his trial, um, I'm taking these words from the rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar. Um, he says, you Jews, you, pro you, you produce messiahs by the sackful. Jesus is not that special. There's thousands of messiahs that keep coming out of your weird religion. This, this is according to Pontius Pilate, of course. And, so, and for the Romans, Jesus' crucifixion was just one of thousands that they performed. That was their normal means of stomping down insurrections and keeping the population in check. So from their perspective, of course, what happened with Jesus was not a big deal. But yet we know today it's had huge implications for our lives, for the world, and for the cosmos as well. And the unique fact of Jesus' resurrection is what sets him apart from any other person who was crucified. It proved that Jesus was not just a common criminal or a two-bit revolutionary. He set in motion a completely different future for humankind and for the entire cosmos. So Paul's claim here is that Jesus has changed time and space in a way that's already affected human history and our lives, but at the same time has not yet come to full completion. It's going to develop further. But right now, because we live in Christ right now, and we've died and been raised to new life in Christ, um, we're living in this same kind of space-time warp thing. And as a result, he's, Paul's then going to call us to action, to start living on this new mysterious union we have with Christ and join in the movement that he started. There's uh, some song lyrics that I think capture this pretty well. Christ is risen from the dead. We are one with him again. Come awake, come awake, come and rise up from the grave. Uh, that's the good news of the gospel. Jesus' resurrection has changed everything. And as a result of that then, Paul has some advice for the church in Colossae about how then do we live in light of this amazing news and good news it is that Christ is alive and we are alive with him. Well, that takes us into the realm of morality and ethics in this new world that Christ has brought about. Now, in earlier, in, at the end of chapter 2 in Colossians, Paul seemed to not really have any time for talking about behavioral guidelines or rules or regulations. Um, he makes it sound as if there's really no limit to your personal freedom. Listen to what he said at the end of chapter 2 to the Colossians. Why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. 
These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, but their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Well, that sounds like we're pretty much free to do whatever we want, right? Well, Paul's got a surprise. He's got another set of Christian ethics and standards, but they're going to be different in quality and tone, and we'll, we'll dig into that here in a little bit. Um, here's what Colossians 3, 5 through 11 says. Here's Paul's advice now instead to the Colossians. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So here we've got two different lists, short lists of improper, inappropriate things for Christians to do. And we'll talk a little bit more about those in detail in a minute. But taking as a, as a group, Paul is, seems to be replacing one set of rules and regulations with another, at least on the surface. It looks like that to me. But there is a difference, and here's, here's how we might explain the difference. Um, I, I, you can't preach in this church without quoting N.T. Wright, so here's a quote from N.T. Wright, <laughs> biblical scholar and Andy's best friend, <laughs> whom he personally knows. <laughs> here's what N.T. Wright says about this passage. The old taboos, the ones that were mentioned in chapter 2, they put the wild animals of lust and hatred into cages, and there they remain, alive but dangerous, a constant threat to their captor. Paul's solution is more drastic. These animals are to be killed. The old method of holiness attacked the symptoms. The true method goes for the root. So this is what's different in, I guess, the, the tenor or the quality of what Paul's talking about is how Christians should behave now in this new, new world. So putting these old practices to death, killing them, um, is one metaphor that Paul uses. Another way of speaking about this change in the behavior for Christians now, it's related to our sense of fashion or our wardrobe, I guess you might say. Um, let me explain. Uh, my wife, Debbie, she comes from a large family. She's one of seven uh, children. Um, four of them are sisters, all born within about five years of each other. So four sisters that are very close to, in age, and more to the point, they all got married within a few years of each other. And so the, the men that they married, that's the in-laws, the son, sons-in-law of Debbie's uh, folks, um, because the sisters are so close, we kind of have grown close to each other as well, the, the sons-in-law. We, we call ourselves the outlaws. So <laughs> anyway, um, over the years, we've, we've grown close and we've kind of, you can't help but compare um, our relationships with our wives, and we have found that 
by virtue of being so close, we have shared some common experiences uh, by, being, uh, virtue, by virtue of being married to these four sisters, and we've noticed there's some common traits that run in this family and some expressions that they use. For example, uh, one of the things that we joke about, Debbie's maiden name is Parsons, so we call it living on Parsons time. Um, they have a different sense of clock in their heads, I guess, and so whenever there's a scheduled activity for the family, you can probably be sure that's not going to happen right at the specified time. It's going to happen maybe an hour later, maybe 45 minutes later. They'll get around to it when they get around to it. Um, I guess growing up in a family of seven kids, it probably took a while to get everybody gathered together in the car, go wherever, you know, those kinds of things. So um, Parsons' time is one of the things that we kind of joke about amongst the outlaws. Another thing is the way they do meals. I, I don't know how they do it, but they don't really plan menus when we get together for family gatherings. They just kind of throw stuff together. Let's see what's in the fridge and in the cupboards, and we'll throw something together. But invariably, it turns out to be great. It's a great meal, but I don't know how to do it. I'm a list person. I have to decide, you know, here's my recipes I'm going to follow. I get my list of groceries. I go to the store, pick them up, have them set out, ready to go. But they just throw their meals together, and they start, turn out great. Um, and it's not unusual for both of those tendencies, Parsons time and the thrown together meals to happen together. So Thanksgiving time, you know, we're going to have dinner at 2 o'clock. It's usually 4 o'clock when we have the turkey ready to dive into. Um, but there's one other thing that we've noticed, all the outlaws have noticed, that, and it's the exact same wordage the wives, the, the girls all use is, is that what you're wearing? Now, we've all learned that that's not a question that you need to answer. In fact, it's, it's not really a question at all. What it is, is it's a second chance to go back to your closet and find something else that's more appropriate, right? So my wife says, is that what you're wearing? When I first was, you know, newlywed, I would say, well, yeah, what do you think? You know, or, no, this is not what I'm wearing. Well, I don't know what you're seeing. But I quit being sarcastic because I realized that what she was saying is, that's not what you're wearing. <laughs> So, but all four sisters use that same phrase. And so whenever we get together, we always generally, it's, at some point, it, we talk about, is that what you're wearing kind of a thing? <laughs> well, here in Colossians 3, Paul is asking his readers, is that what you're wearing? And it's not really a question. If they're smart, they're going to go back to their closet and find something else to wear. And so Paul uses this language of taking off and putting on a new kind of set of clothes. And these behaviors are compared to a set of clothes or your wardrobe, basically. Now, we've mentioned briefly, there's two different types of clothing that Paul talks about specifically. Or you might say two categories of the old practices. Um, we'll briefly look at each. The first has to do with sexuality. Um, that first list, there's five different terms. Um, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and then greed, which is idolatry. He, so he gives us a, a list of five different things and then kind of wraps it up in a bow with this kind of over, overarching idea of greed being idolatry. Um, five obvious types of sins, and then concluding with a sin that doesn't really seem to fit the category. But here, greed, what Paul means by greed, is an unchecked hunger for physical pleasure. And in the context of all these other sexual uh, behavioral terms, Probably greed means uh, unrestrained sexual lust or seeking after sexual pleasure. And which then, he, Paul says, is idolatry because when that becomes your focus, um, God becomes not your focus. And so therefore you've just replaced God with the, uh, the idol of sexual pleasure um, and all these other sexual sins that kind of flow out from that. 
Um, the second category is speech, or actually maybe we might call it hate speech, um, or speech that is driven by hatred. Again, there's a, another list of five different attributes or five different behaviors. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language. And then he wraps that up, those five up, with this other concluding instruction to not lie. Of course, lying is probably the worst uh, abusive or maybe distorted form of speech. Um, Paul's not saying that we can't have feelings of anger or hate. Um, he realized we can't prevent those from uh, popping into our heads or our hearts. But he does insist that these thoughts and feelings should be dealt with before they turn into words or actions. Um, words do not merely convey information or just let off steam. They change. They have a real effect on situations, on relationships, um, sometimes um, permanently. So Paul's saying hateful words can lead to destructive actions, and so therefore we have to get rid of those. We have to take those off like a filthy coat or something. Um, and then he makes special uh, note of this dangerous kind of words, which is lying. Um, and of course, in his time as well as in ours, we find that truth seems to be in short supply, um, especially if it's embarrassing to ourselves or maybe inconvenient, and we're constantly tempted to, to bend it just a little bit to make ourselves look a little bit better or maybe not quite so bad, or to suit whatever purposes we're aiming for. But Paul insists that Christians have to talk straight um, because, again, remember, our, Christ is, our life is in Christ now. Um, and Christ has already been revealed as the ideal human um, made in the image of God. So Paul's asking again these two categories here of sexual behavior and your speech patterns. Is that what you're wearing? Are you sure that's what you want to do? Um, so for the Colossians, back to the closet, they go, and so do we. So what should our wardrobe look like as Christians? Well, Paul has another list, and again, it comes in a set of five. Interesting, there's a parallelism between five, five, and five here. Um, Colossians 3, 12 to 14 reads, Therefore, in light of all these other things, taking off your old wardrobe, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So once again, we have those five words wrapped up with this sixth virtue of forgiveness. And then just for good measure and to show the superiority of the Christian ethic, Paul adds a seventh, which is love, which binds everything together. That's like the I don't know what you call it, the setting off um, a necklace or a bracelet or something that really sets off the rest of your outfit kind of a thing. Love is what binds them all together and makes everything else come alive and sparkle. Uh, so two lists of behaviors to put off and one list to put on. Um, and so, again, we have to ask the question, now, how are these lists of things that we're not supposed to do and that we are supposed to do, how are they so different from what happened in the old pagan setup? Well... One of these is that um, in the old system, these uh, behaviors and actions, rules, regulations, whatever you might call them, they were aiming at um, gaining the gods' acceptance and um, to reward their followers. 
Basically, they were bribes that were meant to cause a certain action by the god in favor or on behalf of the worshiper. Paul flips that around and says these Christian virtues are responses, not bribes, but they're responses to the love and the acceptance that God has already shown us in Christ. God is the one who acted first. Our response is what drives our behavioral ethic, I guess you might say. They're the natural consequences and the response of gratitude on our part for the grace that God has already shown us. And that makes the difference between these two sets of rules or regulations or behaviors. So, which is all well and good. We look at that list again. Um, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness. That's good stuff, really. But in our culture, I think there's still uh, a hurdle <laughs> that stands in our way for letting these things grow in our lives. Applying this list of Paul's virtues, Christian virtues, um, I think we might illustrate it best with just a short video clip here. We'll roll this tape, so they say. Pilgrim. Picnicking, Miss Dandridge? Where, in St. Louis? Oh, no, sir, just out by the waterfall, but I'm sorry. Never apologize, mister, it's a sign of weakness. Mr. Cohill? Hey, hey, hey! Go ahead, make my day. Hey, did you bring the cavalry? Woman, I am the cavalry. Of course you are. Did The Rock just say that he is the cavalry? I think English teachers and religion teachers, you're probably squirming right now. I think he's messed up that line, right? He should have said cavalry, not Calvary. Anyway. Um, and I'm not sure what was going on there with the village people. I, I should apologize after that, but John Wayne said that I shouldn't do that because it's a sign of weakness. So our, our, the problem here is what we call machismo or macho men, or today I think we call it toxic masculinity. Is that the phrase that we use? Um, the, this list of Christian virtues that Paul lays out it's not, they're not um, popular <laughs> in our culture. Um, there's a conservative writer and a thinker, uh, his name is David Brooks. His, his um, evaluation of the situation goes like this. He says that for thousands of years, social thinking has been dominated by men, usually alpha men, who saw life as a place where warriors and traders went out and competed for wealth and power. These male writers were largely blind to the systems of care that undergirded everything else and which celebrated relationships and intimacy. And so in the same um, essay, he goes on to refer to this new book that he's re reviewing. It's called The Crisis of Connection. And it focuses on the changes that our culture seems to force children into as they're growing into adolescence. Um, the culture teaches teen girls not to talk and teen boys not to feel. Um, girls begin to say, I don't know, and boys say, I don't care. They've been pushed away from honest sharing and deep connection. And then Brooks goes on to say that all this was survivable when religion played a bigger role in national life with its gospel of mercy, charity, and love. But now we have an ethos of detachment and competition all the way down. 
The political campaigns we just endured are a recent example of this pseudo-masculine chest-thumping display to show how much they hate each other on both sides. And I should say, I, I, have, I saw those in political ads by both men and women, so it's not necessarily strictly a, a masculine thing. Both parties are guilty. Um, both sides of the political aisle are guilty of that. And another author, his name is Jonathan Merritt. He's a lifelong evangelical. His father is the pastor of some megachurch somewhere. He did a study on the same topic, and he found this study that was published in the Journal of Positive Psychology. It analyzed tons, like hundreds and hundreds of, of uh, websites, blogs, newspaper articles, and all sorts of written and um, on TV as well, um, people talking heads and those kinds of things, news, news programs. They analyzed 50 terms that are associated with moral virtue. Some of these same things that Paul's talking about is what the clothing that we should put on now. Um, language about the virtues that Christians call the fruit of the Spirit, words like love, patience, gentleness, and faithfulness, has become much rarer, the study found. Humility words like modesty fell by 52%. Compassion words like kindness have dropped by 56%. Gratitude words like thankfulness have declined by 49%. So we've got living in a culture that is really antagonistic or doesn't support at least, at least it doesn't support these kinds of Christian virtues of compassion, kindness, love. Um, however, there, are some, there is some good, good news as well. Um, the same book that David Brooks was reviewing, The Crisis of Connection, one of the authors was a lady named Mary Gordon. And she's also founded a, a project she calls the Roots of Empathy Project. Um, and she tells, in this book, she tells this story. Um, part of the program is that once a month, a parent who has an infant child will visit children's classrooms in public schools. Um, they'll visit with the children, they'll sit on a green blanket, and the children will gather around to talk and watch what the infant is doing. Um, they watch the infant try to crawl for something or reach for a toy. They're learning to put themselves inside the mind of the baby because they're observing and, and talking about what they observe in the baby. So they're learning emotional literacy, and they're learning what deep attachment looks like. But in one class, there was an eighth grade boy, which Mary Gordon, she calls him Darren, probably disguised his name. Um, but he had, <clears throat> when he was four years old, he had seen his mother murdered. And then after that, he was put into foster care. Um, this is an eighth grade boy, so from the time he was four until he was eighth grade, he'd been in foster care and dealing with this issue of having seen his mother murdered. And he was bigger than everybody else in the class because he was two grades behind them. One day, to everybody's surprise, Darren asked to hold the baby. Now, the mother was nervous, but she let him. And Darren was great with the baby. He went over to a quiet corner. He rocked the baby while the baby snuggled into his chest. When the class time was over, Darren returned the baby to his mother, and he asked the mother this question. If nobody has ever loved you, do you think you could still be a good father? So there it was. Even in the traumatized soil of that Darren's life was the seeds of empathy, trying to feel and understanding what this baby felt through. A bloom of empathy is what Mary Gordon calls it. So when we Christians are putting on this new wardrobe of compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, and love, we're running against the flow of much of our, our culture. And we might be accused from some folks of being either weak or soft or wimpy or maybe even unrealistic or unpatriotic in some places. 
But if enough of us practice these virtues, um, just like Darren did, our little blooms of empathy here and there are going to spread, and eventually they'll become a vast garden, we hope, of life and beauty. It all depends on what it is you're wearing. Finally, um, Colossians 3.15, Paul wraps up his discussion of these Christian virtues. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. And today we're marking the 100th anniversary of the signing of the armistice that ended World War I. The 11th hour, the 11th day of the 11th month, they signed the, the armistice that ended World War I. Eight million soldiers had died. Seven million civilians had been killed in the, that war. Our American president at the time, Woodrow Wilson, he proclaimed that that day, the day of the signing of the armistice, quote, gave to the world an assured opportunity to reconstruct its shattered order and to work out in peace a new and juster set of international relations. Now, since that original Armistice Day, um, the United States, we've expanded the meaning beyond just the end of World War I to kind of commemorate and honor all of our service members, both living and dead, from all of our wars that we've been in. Um, and so today we, are, we recognize and we honor those sacrifices and that, that service. <clears throat> but I believe that Woodrow Wilson would probably be saddened to know that our wars are continuing. They continue to our day. And peace remains elusive, not only between nations, but between people, between parties, uh, even within our own borders. Last couple of weeks we've experienced again violent outbreaks. Um, mass shootings uh, in Pittsburgh and in Thousand Oaks, California. Um, so we still have issues. Um, and once again, we find ourselves mourning loss of life, and we have to turn to the Psalms or lamentations in the Bible. Uh, Psalm 140 becomes kind of our theme. Rescue me, Lord, from evildoers. Protect me from the violent who devise evil plans in their hearts and stir up war every day. I say to the Lord, you are my God. Hear, Lord, my cry for mercy. Well, Paul, hopefully, um, we've gathered at this point in the third, third chapter of Colossians, he reminds us that we've been called to exemplify and embody Christ's way of peace, which begins with seeking and nurturing peace amongst ourselves, even in our own faith communities, in our congregations. And it's important to remember that the Christian definition of peace is not merely the absence of conflict, which it surely does include that, but also it goes beyond that to be um, holistic and a positive view of well-being within all versions or aspects of our lives. Um, it implies an overall well-being and healthy relationships between each other. And in the ancient church and many traditions today, um, Right before they, uh, the congregation receives communion, they pass the peace, the peace of Christ. Um, and since we haven't had our greeting time yet, I would invite us to stand up and greet each other. And if you feel comfortable, pass the peace. You say, peace be with you. And then the other person responds by saying, and also with you. So allow me to begin. I'll start by saying, the peace of Christ be with you. Colossians 3.15 says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. This new outfit that we put on, our new way of living in the world, um, is nurtured and maintained 
by peace and gratefulness. And we express that through the ritual of communion. Um, we're members of one body. Paul says communion means living together, togetherness. Um, and of course, another name for communion is Eucharist, which is a Greek word means great thanksgiving or thankfulness. And Paul says, be thankful. So we're going to receive communion now as an act of uh, sol uh, solidarity with each other, unity, and as an act of thanksgiving to God for our salvation. So let me remind us that on the night that Jesus gave himself up for us, he took bread and gave thanks to God. He broke the bread and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, he took the cup and gave thanks for it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So we receive communion by coming forward and receiving the elements from uh, servers. They'll be stationed one on each side at the side aisles there. Um, and after the servers have take, received communion themselves and then taken their place, uh, I'll invite the congregation, or the congregation can feel free to come up to one of the stations. We'll serve the musicians and the um, communion servers first, and then the congregation can come forward. Uh, we invite you to take a, a piece of bread out of the tray, dip it into the cup, and then consume the two together right away. Um, we have gluten-free elements and a gluten-free juice cup in the middle. And so if you need those, those are in the center dedicated for your use there. Um, and if you're unable to come forward to receive communion, we have a communion usher who will bring communion to you. Just raise your hand and she'll find her way to you. Let's pray. Lord, we who have been redeemed by your grace and made a new people by water and the Spirit, now bring before you these gifts of bread and juice. Sanctify them by your Holy Spirit that they would be for us the body and the blood of Jesus Christ our Lord, so that we, in turn, might be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. Amen.